The Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast is brought to you by the Office of Communications at the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. I think I think as Catholics, we kind of forget that it's okay. It, it's not weird to other people to be invited to go to Mass. Mm-hmm. It, it may all be a one-way street of feeling weird. Welcome back to Tulsa Time with Bishop Condola. I'm Adam Minahan. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you guys so much for uh, sending reviews for our podcast, following us on Facebook. It's really been awesome to see the reviews on and the comments on, on YouTube and, and get receiving emails. We've received a couple emails. Uh, I appreciate you guys, you know, giving us some good feedback. And I think we're going to be taking some of the suggestions that we've been hearing about, like what they want to hear uh, and, and implementing those over the course of the next couple months. So sure, that'd be good. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, this is going to be aired during Easter time. Oh, yeah. So, Happy Easter, everyone. Yeah, we can we can now say hallelujah. On air. We can. On air. Yeah, on air. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't say it outside. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're... This is uh, Thursday. We're heading into Holy Week. Uh, everybody say an extra prayer for your pastors. That's right. And the priests in your parish, it's a busy time for the clergy planning all the liturgies. But the liturgies, of course, are beautiful. And so I think every year there are people who have never been to the Easter Vigil before who go Mm -hmm. and who are blown away. And so we always recommend to people, go to the Vigil if you can, Mm -hmm. because it is the high liturgy of the church each year. And so it's beautiful to see. Now, people could be hearing this right now and saying, well, this is this has already happened, right? Because this is going to be posted after Easter. Oh, that's true. That's true. However, however, God is outside of time. And there's next year. And, and then there's next year. But, <laughs> but the prayers that you, you say right now, God can still utilize those. Yeah. Right? And if you don't... Um... If you don't make it to the vigil this year, there's always next year, right? That's right. And, and there's going to be a lot of opportunities. I, I love Easter time uh, because there's a lot of opportunities to to showcase the Catholic community. Mm-hmm. There's some people who haven't been to church in, in, right. in quite a while. Uh, and so it's such a great opportunity to be able to not only give up your quote-unquote pew for, uh, the, for, yeah. for, for now, I, this is a hard thing for the Minahans because the Minahans <laughs> have had the same pew for about thirty six years. Uh, but but it, it's a good opportunity to to show hospitality, to show uh, to welcome those who may have haven't been to to right. um, a church in a while, and and to uh, to to one just invite somebody. I think I think as Catholics we kind of forget that it's okay. It, it's not weird to other people to be invited to go to mass. Mm. It, it may be, only be a one-way street of feeling weird. And pastors are always going to be looking for, and RCIA directors, which is now called what, OCIA, mm-hmm. uh, always going to be looking for people to help serve, help the parish, serving as sponsors for people who are in the journey mm-hmm. coming into the church. At, at the Easter Vigil, we have two distinct groups of people the uh, elect who are being baptized, mm-hmm. confirmed, and receiving first Holy Eucharist, who have not uh, been Christians up to now, 
And those others who are already baptized, they're not converting. We hear that language right. a lot. They're now, all of us hope that we're converting every day. That's right. There's no neutral. We're always growing closer <laughs> or, or, or away from. But they're not converting to be Catholic. They're coming into full communion with the church. Mm -hmm. That's the proper language. And it is proper and it does make a difference because of what we believe about baptism. And so someone who has been baptized is a Christian. And so they're not converting to be a Christian. Catholics are Christians, uh, but they're coming into full communion with the church, able to receive confirmation and first Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And that all happens at the Easter time. And it's so, it's, so it's great to have uh, all the new Catholics. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad you guys are listening and, and, and tuning into the, the, to the parishes mm -hmm. and plugging into the communities. And I think my favorite part of the vigil is the lighting of the fire, the new fire, and mm -hmm. of the Easter candle. When I was uh, new in campus ministry at A&M, we made our own Easter candle, a three-inch diameter candle that we cast from wax from all the old altar candles. We kept those through the year. Oh, nice. Melted them down and made an Easter candle. And uh, we used a a method of lighting that new fire in which we literally used a spark off of a flintstone to light that fire with. Oh, cool. And so it was very, it was very um, primitive in that sense, but it fit the, the mood of the vigil. What it's doing is hearkening back to primitive times and mm -hmm. to the primitive church. Now you also, before we get, I know we're get, we have a topic we're going to get into, but before we do, you recently just went back to Texas. Yeah, I was there a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weekends ago, for the parish's 150th anniversary. My home parish, St. Joseph's Catholic Parish in Bryan, Texas, started in 1873. And what was interesting, a number of things were interesting about the, the weekend, but uh, of those 150 years, 103 of those years are covered by just three pastors. Wow, so, that's very unusual, right? I mean, very unusual. We had a old Monsignor, Monsignor John Gleisner. He's also who started the campus ministry at Texas A&M. Uh, he was there as the pastor for 49 years. Wow. And about midway through his term, he received a newly ordained young vicar named Timothy Valenta. Timothy stayed there for 27 years as the associate. Then when the old Monsignor died, he became the pastor and was pastor for another 19. And so just those two men cover, what, uh, 49 and uh, about 20, so almost 70 years of the parish's life. And then we had another uh, pastor more recently who was there for 34 years, Monsignor McCaffrey. So... <laughs> The parish has had a lot of stable, yeah, that's stability right <laughs> a lot there. Of stable pastorates, uh, but it was wonderful to celebrate something that's meant so much to so many in a small community for 150 years. Yeah, that was, that was great. There's some great pictures on on Facebook and, and Instagram, so you guys can go check that out if you're interested. And it's like a lot of our parishes here. Uh, that parish, of course, pre-exists the diocese by a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, the diocese of Austin. So we're celebrating 50 years this year here, and many of our parishes are much older than 50 years. And right. Some even older than 100 years. Mm -hmm. So. Right. 
Um, well, awesome. So the last couple uh, episodes, we've been talking about marriage. We've been talking about preparing for marriage, courting, uh, dating. What's the purposes of all, all of these things? Even like how to prepare for marriage, like up to the day. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're there. We're at we're at the day, uh, and and we are we're gonna kind of con- kind of put a bow on on the event, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of bows. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of bows, a lot of flowers, a lot of, but yeah. Um, but uh, uh, so, so we're gonna talk a little bit more about like, okay, what does the, what does the actual day look like? What should we prepare for? What are we actually saying, mm-hmm. even in our in our our vows, marriage vows, and what does that really even mean? Yeah, and I think we're not planning to do a really systematic presentation. I was. I mean, I think anybody, Bishop, who's been watching the Tulsa Time knows that we're not really doing <laughs> systematic presentation. Anything. <laughs> it, it is interesting for me, though, to reflect that uh, bishops don't do many weddings. Hmm. And so I was doing so many weddings because it was such a big part of campus ministry life. And in being here almost seven years, I've done almost none. Do you Just, miss it? Well, in a, in a way... But it, it's just interesting. Things have continued to evolve and change. For instance, I still have the old rite of marriage book, mm-hmm. and this is now no longer used because the new the new rite of marriage was promulgated in what did we look up as twenty. Uh, yeah, there was there was one twenty sixteen. Twenty sixteen. So just about the time I was coming here, a new rite of marriage book. So we're going to use this one just because we want to talk a little bit about the particular vows that are made. But also, I was looking through also um, the Code of Canon Law, and that gives us a, a launching place to talk a bit about the ceremony. Because I think following the logic of what we've been doing, we've been looking at sort of the distinct phases of marriage preparation and, and a couple getting married. And so now we're down to the ceremony itself. And so that's a part of the marriage preparation process is at some point, the couple is going to be talking to the minister about the ceremony itself. And uh, in the parishes, priests and, and uh, people who work with couples preparing for marriage have a lot of resources that can help the couple. There are workbooks that are published by Ave Maria Press and other uh, publishing houses that we would give to couples, and these books contained all the parts so the parts that the couples need to select, they're going to need to select some music. Uh, they'll need to select readings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are various options for prayers, the opening prayer, the, the uh, post-communion prayer, and so forth. There are more than one uh, version of the vows. Some couples are interested in writing their own vows. The church doesn't say no to that, but the church... Uh, says to the couple, whatever you write, it has to contain what's in the vows that are in the rite of marriage. Mm-hmm. Why not just use what's already there? Uh, if you want to add something else, you know, you can. One of the principles uh, in ter- to think through all of this in, and it's something that may help couples uh, it, it may take down the anxiety factor because sometimes there's a lot of anxiety around planning the marriage. I know those uh, guys, those, those grooms, man, they're just... Uh, yeah, I, grooms are really worried about it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Catholic couples don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's given to you. Right. The, the rite of marriage is given to you. It's like when we go to Mass every Sunday. The priest doesn't have to plan the whole Mass every Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's given to us. We have a liturgical rite that is prescribed. The same for the rite of marriage. And there's an analogous way in which uh, the bride and groom should think and act like the priest. One of the things that uh, seminarians are often taught in seminary is a little phrase, uh, read the red, do the black. And it's referring to in these uh, ritual books, I don't know if the camera can pick that up, but there's red print and there's black print. The red print is called the rubrics, and the rubrics are instructions. So, for instance, here in the rite of marriage, as we're coming into the consent, the rubric says, the priest then questions them about their freedom of choice, faithfulness to each other, and the acceptance and upbringing of children. So there's the instruction for the priest. If you lost your place, Father, this is what you're supposed to be doing at this point. Right. And then after it is the black, which is the words that he's going to be saying to them and they're going to be saying to each other and so forth. Well, it is important that at Sunday Mass, for example, that the priest not be inventing things on the fly. We're supposed to, as uh, presiders and celebrants of the Mass, Read the red and do the black. We're supposed to be faithful to the liturgy as the church prescribes it. And so the bride and groom, since they're the ones who are giving the sacrament to each other in the rite of marriage, in that sense, they're sort of celebrants of the Mm -hmm. sacrament of marriage. So they need to uh, observe the same kind of principle, which is why they don't need to reinvent the wheel. They don't need to go to a whole lot of trouble and expense to make this the most unique, one-of-a-kind, whatever, whatever. Right. They can simply do what the church is doing. Now, do you think, do you find that to have some freedom in it? Like the obedience provides that freedom? It can. It certainly can. Um, You know, if you think about uh, weddings outside of church, for example, and what I mean is like uh, secular weddings just wherever they happen— you sort of have to plan the whole thing. That's why wedding planners do so much work in those things. They have to, okay, who's going to do what, and when are they going to do it, and what's the setting going to be, and all of that. But for couples celebrating the sacrament of marriage in the Catholic Church and in the Catholic faith, those things are already given to you and prescribed. You simply have to practice doing them. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some elements that can be customized, so to speak, the dress of the wedding party, uh, the kind of flowers that are used, music that's picked, those kinds of things. But even there, uh, there are some limitations that have to do with simply um, the setting. Uh, It is a liturgical setting. Mm -hmm. I think I said here even a, a couple episodes ago, I once had a bride who requested of me the to use the entrance song to use as the entrance song Stephen Perry's um, faithfully from the band journey from yeah. the band journey yeah and it's a great song <laughs> it's a wonderful song I love the song it'd be a great song to play during the dance portion of the of the 
reception. reception afterwards. Right. But it's a liturgical setting. It's not the right place for that. And uh, I, I think she was very upset that I wouldn't let her do it. And so that's part of what I mean by you can save yourself a lot of trouble and anxiety by understanding these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we can look, uh, as I was looking through canon law, just a few things to talk about here. Uh, canon uh, 1063 is where the canons of canon law get down to the celebration of the ceremony. And... Uh, 1063 says that pastors of souls are obliged to see to it that their own community furnishes the Christian faithful assistance so that the matrimonial state is maintained in a Christian spirit and makes progress toward perfection. This assistance is especially furnished through four primary things. One is everything we've been talking about up to now, the preaching, the catechesis, the helping Uh, the Catholic faithful from the time they're babies, Mm -hmm. learn what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and learn that there is such a thing as a vocation, a call from Christ to the sacramental state of marriage and family life and how to prepare for such things. Number two is personal preparation for entering marriage so that the parties may be predisposed toward the holiness and duties of their new state. So that's what we were talking about and have been talking about in terms of the proximate preparation. Mm-hmm. The couple is engaged. Now they're preparing to actually be married. Now, now oh, can I, l- let me ask you a quick question because we, we were actually talking about this off air and I thought, oh, this, this is something I don't think we actually discussed. Uh, what, we, we discussed a lot of different options, uh, but one of the ones we didn't maybe discuss is, is talking about if you're a non-Catholic, hmm. should you be looking for a Catholic yeah. Partner. I think we got into that some last time, and I was saying that I used to to say to groups of the students, if they would ask the question, uh, can a Catholic marry someone who's not Catholic? And I would right. say no, just to shock them, but then explain it. Right. But I think I was explaining to you, there's another uh, side to that coin to think, to, to understand it through. And it has to do with the person who's not Catholic. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone who's not Catholic and you meet a Catholic who basically is pretty uh, unintentional, maybe uninterested in the practice of their Catholic faith, mm-hmm. uh, they may be a Catholic who's relatively uncatechized, who maybe goes to Mass sometimes but not seriously, who doesn't seem to really understand why they're Catholic or really seem to be uh, committed to being Catholic. Mm -hmm. You should be careful because that may seem fine now. Maybe it seems to facilitate the two of you coming from different faith traditions having a relationship because they're not really that interested in the things that are going on as a Catholic. But if you marry that person and that person later has a reversion Mm-hmm. To being Catholic, which does often happen, especially once children begin to arrive. That's right. Uh, if later the Holy Spirit moves in that person's life in such a way that they they uh, mature enough to realize, oh wait, this is important. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Lord. I was baptized as a Catholic. 
I have obligations to live as a Catholic. I have obligations to raise my children as Catholics. Then suddenly in the marriage, you find, wow, all of a sudden I'm married to this serious, devout Catholic who wants to go to Mass every Sunday, wants me to go with them every Sunday, wants me to raise the children as Catholic and all these things. So one needs to take stock of that. Sure. Uh, in that dating relationship would be the time to say, don't you, even the non-Catholic should say to the Catholic, aren't you supposed to go to Mass every Sunday? Right. Um, and if the Catholic says, eh, well, what does that mean? Right. Uh, you know, sometimes the non-Catholic person is really devout. They're the ones who are really committed to Jesus Christ and to being a Christian. And if you meet someone who says they're Catholic, but they're not really living as if they're Catholic, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so it was another way to, to look at that question. Yeah. As we said before, it doesn't mean that it can't work. It can work. It's sure. just hard. And our point, our major point was that since you can control these things from the outset to a great degree, mm -hmm. because this old business of accidentally falling in love somewhere because of the stars or something, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Uh, so since you can control a lot of these things from the outset, think about how you want your future marriage and relationship to be, and then make that happen. Right. Uh, and so it would begin by dating people who are good faithful Catholics who match you and your faith and, and moving forward that way. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I agree. Sorry. I, I thought though, that was a, that was an interesting way of, of the other side of the coin that, that is revealing and, and could maybe help other people as well as they're preparing. Yeah, I think so. So, okay. So what was number three? Uh, number three is what we're really talking about today. So the third way that pastors of souls helps the Christian faithful uh, with regards to marriage is through a fruitful ce liturgical celebration of marriage, clarifying that the spouses signify and share in that mystery of unity and a fruitful love that exists between Christ and the church. So married spouses are forming in the world the image of Christ who is faithful to his church as they are faithful to each other, and that's what they're signifying in the liturgical celebration. But then that's also why it's important for them to sort of take the mantle of responsibility on to say, we're going to be on that day ministers for the church, not just our parish community, but also our parish community. And our marriage ceremony, our wedding, is not just for us. It is a public teaching uh, encounter, a public teaching action in which by the things we say and do that day, we are teaching all those gathered and showing to all those gathered what the sacrament of marriage is and what we ourselves intend to do and to be as spouses. Uh, so... When you get into the planning then, you know, the things that you're, you'll be choosing among, the readings, the, the prayers, and so forth, that's something that couples can use that kind of a resource we were talking about to prayerfully consider, uh, you know, who are we, how, what is our relationship with the Lord, 
And what readings would we like to use that help us to signify those uh, aspects of the mystery of marriage that are really important to us, Mm -hmm. that have been in our relationship thus far? Um, Some of the things that have already been been done before they get to the, the ceremony have to do with the pastor working with them to determine that, in fact, they are free to marry. We talked about that. That's what that prenuptial investigation does. Mm-hmm. The second part, though, is that they're ready to marry. Uh, that's a part that can that can escape people uh, if they think that it's just a matter of filling out paperwork and then getting married. Well, if you go to if you do civil marriage, it is that they're not going to give you any quiz or anything at the courthouse. You're going to fill out paper, pay your fee, go before the judge, be done, and that's it. But the church understands marriage differently. It's a much higher bar, and therefore a couple really needs to be prepared and ready. And if they're not, they shouldn't go through with it, and thus the pastor shouldn't lead them through it until they're ready. Couples have a right to marriage. The, the church believes that and teaches that. But that right is not... Uh, simply cover everything, they have a right to marriage, but that right to marriage is contingent, in a sense, on their capacity and understanding of how to live out the obligations of the sacrament. And if the pastor sees that, I don't think they are there yet, then even though they have, quote, a right to marriage, they're just not ready yet, and the pastor will continue to work with them to help them get, uh, get ready. Um, and then in terms of the, the kind of ceremony they're going to have, there's a decision to be made there. Again, it goes to this question of Catholics marrying someone who's not Catholic. If a Catholic is marrying someone who's not Catholic, it's better if they celebrate the sacrament of marriage outside of Mass. But it's often the case, at least this has been my experience, that that can be very troubling for the Catholic party and or for the family. Sometimes it's the family who are troubled. Right. Uh, mom or grandma wants this thing to take place during Mass. But the reason why the church in her wisdom thinks that it's better to celebrate the sacrament outside of Mass if, you're, if it's a mixed-faith marriage is because precisely in the liturgy of their union, mm-hmm. one of them won't receive communion. Right. And presumably half of the church won't receive communion. So there's a countersign in the fact that they're, they're being joined in, in uh, marriage, but because there's a disparity of cult in terms of the, the faith background of them, one side can't receive communion. So you solve that by celebrating the rite of marriage outside of Mass. It, the ritual goes just like marriage within Mass, except that after the vows, uh, there's a closing prayer, the blessing, and, and it's done. And so you just don't go through the rite of communion. Um, it... it um, I, when you told me that, I, that was something that I, I hadn't really thought about. I hadn't really um, considered. But I think that, that there's there is a dis 
uh, jointing there, right, of, of what your actions are doing, your mm. outward actions and what the inward realities are, right? The, mm-hmm. the right, regardless of being communion, receiving communion, being in communion, mm-hmm. uh, and then, but not being in communion. And so, again, it goes to what I, I was saying earlier. Yes, Catholics should want to be married within the celebration of this Mass, but then Catholics should date in such a way that leads them to a relationship in which that can take place can take place without uh, this countersign. So um, yeah. that's that's one consideration uh, in terms of the large things to think about in terms of planning a wedding. Um, the the music, you know, you want it to be beautiful. There are certain times of the year when the music may be restricted. For example, in Lent, right? Uh, the church may ask that it be simpler. It's best to get married in your parish, a parish that is somehow connected to you or the families. Uh, a lot of dioceses will find that they have to restrict non-parishioners of the cathedral, people who are not members of the cathedral parish, or some other large, beautiful church building. Sure. Sometimes parishes that have a really large, beautiful church building. This will probably be a case, for example, in Oklahoma City with the new shrine. You may have lots of couples who want to use that church building because it's beautiful. Right. And the pictures will look great. Right. But then the poor couples who actually are members of that parish can never find a date. Mm-hmm. And so you end up restricting it somehow. So best to do it within a parish that somehow you're connected to. And certainly best that you're connected to a parish as all of this is happening. Right. So that's another uh, big consideration. And again, I, I would suggest to couples, hopefully if all of this is has made sense and has been going on, couples would not would already not be thinking about a beach marriage or a destination wedding or something like that. All of that is secondary to what we're actually doing, which is joining our lives together with God and the celebration of this liturgy in a way that respects what the church teaches and believes about marriage. Uh, those things can often be done can happen they require various kinds of dispensation and bishops are often very careful about giving such dispensation precisely because there's a kind of a a watering down of faith uh, when a lot of that is happening hmm. so uh, a circumstance for example in which a, a dispensation could easily be given would be a bride and groom who want to get married, but it's really important to them that their grandmother is there and she's homesick in bed and can't come. Could we do the the ceremony in the backyard so that she can at least see us get married from the door of the house or something? Yes, that's the kind of a thing where there's a real uh, pastoral reason to make the dispensation. But can we get married you know, on the beach because we love the outdoors and we find God in the outdoors and so forth, that's not a real reason. And it's contrary to the uh, more important principle of getting celebrating the sacraments within a sacred space, the sacred space of the church. Mm -hmm. 
So that's going to be probably not granted. Right. Um, yeah, it should be the. It should not be the norm. Right. right. I mean, it should be the exception to the rule. And right. There's, there's exceptions to the rule by definition are the minority cases. Right. And another case that comes up are, are a mixed-faith couple in which they want to get married in the non-Catholic partner's church, perhaps because this has happened to me, the non-Catholic part, party has a family member who's the pastor of that church. Mm. Okay. Uh, can we have our uncle or my dad or whatever, who's the pastor of this church, be the celebrant of the wedding? Yes, the church can authorize such things. There are dispensations that the priest can help you fill out and so forth. But then what typically happens is the Catholic partner or the family, more often of the Catholic partner, says, no, 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 there has to be a priest there. If it's not blessed by a priest, we don't think it's real. That's just not true. Uh, it's not true that it won't be real. It won't be somehow valid. The church is authorizing this other person to act on behalf of the church as a witness. And it's therefore not necessary for a priest to be there, and it can be problematic uh, hmm. for a priest to be there. So if you're going to go that route, recognize that's what you're, what you're doing. Um, so those kinds of things. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the person involved who's getting married is a Catholic who has not yet come to real terms with their Catholic faith. They're not perhaps living it seriously. And it's the family who's trying to drive a lot of decisions of using the church and doing it this way, but the person getting married is not really interested in that. Mm -hmm. And that's always a problem. I've always felt like that was a problem because the family's trying to create an appearance of Catholicity that's not, not there. there. Hmm. And so they're they're sometimes trying to fit square pegs and round holes hmm. to make that happen. Much better to let them get married the way they want to get married, continue to invite them, accompany them in the in their faith life as they grow as a family, and hopefully they will come back to faith or reach a maturity of faith that they haven't reached yet. That would be the the more appropriate way for that to happen. Um so um, let me see if there's anything here that I was also thinking about talking about. What about the Catholic vows themselves? Um, yeah, so let's talk first about uh, other aspects of sacraments to okay. be celebrated with and around marriage. It's always worth reminding couples that it's it's very good practice to celebrate the sacrament of penance before receiving the sacrament of marriage. The other question that comes up a lot is if they're confirmed or not. Hmm. Sometimes someone who wants to get married is not yet confirmed. It is, uh, it is allowed. I mean, a Catholic can get married who's not confirmed. But it certainly is the preference of the church that they be confirmed first, and really it ought to be their preference too, because of the order of the sacraments. The completion of the sacraments of initiation, baptism, Holy Eucharist, confirmation, uh, those sacraments of initiation signal that a person is fully initiated as a Catholic, mm -hmm. 
Well, shouldn't they be fully initiated as a Catholic before they're celebrating a sacrament of vocation as a Catholic? Yes, they should. So if they're not confirmed yet, please seek that right away, mm-hmm. begin that process right away to, to make that happen. Uh, when you draw close, and, and often in the last week, it would be a good time to do it, celebrate the sacrament of reconciliation, mm-hmm. uh, make a good confession before receiving the sacrament of marriage. I often recommend it to couples to plan in their calendar a couple of days off, at least one day off, right before the ceremony. So at the end of that week, perhaps, if they're getting married on a weekend, so that they can have a day where they can go away somewhere quiet and simply pray, spend time with each other, spend time praying. They could use the scriptures they're going to have at their wedding, for example, the scriptures and the prayers. They could meditate, discuss with one another the meaning of those things, talk more about their plans after the, after the wedding as they begin their life together as a Christian couple, talk about their hopes from the Lord, mm-hmm. how they want to relate to the Lord, that would also be a good practice. It would help them. Yeah, I think that that's, that's uh, great advice because uh, the wedding itself, the ceremony happens so fast. Uh, and you're full of emotions. Uh, you're, you're full of excitement. Uh, and a lot of times you kind of miss a lot of what happens. Exactly. Yeah. It's also a great way to prepare because, uh, you know, as you're coming together as a, as a new family, uh, this is what you should be doing every week, preparing for Sunday, right? right? Like is reading the readings ahead of time mm-hmm. so that we can get the most out of Sunday's liturgy. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the same concept, right? Is reading the, the you know, praying over the, the, the scripture ahead of time or the mm-hmm. readings ahead of time so that when the the ceremony happens you're getting the mo- you're you're already familiar with it sure. and you get the most out of it and you know the some other practical things have to do with appropriate dress mm-hmm. um, it's always important for brides to be conscious of and careful about the modesty of the dress because styles of course are all over the place and uh, sometimes the dress is so revealing, it's a little bit embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Uh, another, it's a practical thing, but I, I often was struck by it uh, during weddings, is for the bride to consider in terms of the bridesmaids and in terms of the bridesmaids' dress, tattoos. Mm. That's, a, that's a reality in the culture that we live in. Uh, you go to the trouble of having these really nice formal dresses and beautiful dresses, but it turns out the bridesmaids have some really kind of uh, unusual tattoo that is displayed when wearing that particular cut of the dress and so forth. And so those things can be distractions. Yeah, those are things you don't think about until you're taking pictures at the ceremony and you're like, oh, I wish I would have thought of this ahead of time. Yeah, right. Things like little... Um, little uh, flower girls and little ring bearers carrying top secret cases handcuffed to their wrists with dark glasses on or stuff, all the kinds of stuff that you see. Right. They're cute and they're funny. Do that at the reception. Right. But the the ceremony is somewhat serious. Right. And Uh, sacred. And sacred. Well, sacred is the word I should use. Uh, it is a sacred rite, 
And so don't make fun of it. Right. It's fine to use young people. I, I always cautioned couples to pick children who were five, six, and above that kind of age, not kids who are two or three. Mm-hmm. Yes, they look cute, but invariably they melt down on the aisle. Uh, invariably. And I think what happens, even though they were perfect the night before at the rehearsal, because everybody's relaxed at the rehearsal, this is not real yet. Right. And not there's not a ton of eyes on them yet. Yeah, not a lot of eyes. The next day, all of a sudden, they pick up on all the adults' tension. <laughs> and they pick so up on suddenly all those eyes are looking at them, and they just melt down, and it's very distracting again. So pick people who can be relied on, right, right to make it up the aisle, to do those kinds of things. Um, I would uh, suggest the couples to be modest about flowers and all those kinds of things too, in part because you can spend your money in a lot better ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, give the the poor pianist an extra $50, you know, yeah. instead of a, a whole bunch of flowers. And two, because I have, of course, seen distractions and disasters even, when trying to do too much in terms of decorations and all kinds of things, parishes will have various kinds of uh, restrictions, limitations on what can be used or done. Please note that parishes see lots of ceremonies all year long, and that list of limitations and restrictions has been developed because of painful episodes. (laughs) And so they're simply trying to save you some grief. Sure. Uh, follow along with with those kinds of things. Lots of parishes will have uh, wedding coordinators. Uh, they can be very helpful. They'll know all the ins and outs and where everything is, so use them. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? I guess those are the main the main, main things. Main things to consider. We yeah. were uh, we were going to talk also simply a moment about the vows themselves. Uh, again, this is a good thing for a couple to pray with and pray over and practice saying them to one another uh, because it's going to be a very emotional moment Mm -hmm. when you say them in front of everyone. If you've practiced it a little bit beforehand, it makes it at least a less anxious moment. Sure. Yeah. Uh, But the vows themselves, one of the forms in the United States says, I, so-and-so, take you, so-and-so, from my lawful wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. I think God in his providence uh, shields uh, the eyes of young couples from all the things that may happen so that they'll at least go through. (laughs) (laughs) So they marry. (laughs) So they'll go through with the ceremony. But again, think of all the things that you know of, uh, births of children, fantastic parties, uh, beautiful relationships, all the kinds of joys, uh, the pride that comes from growing as a family, all the kinds of joys that are a part of marriage and family life. Mm-hmm. But we also know that, you know, couples have um, 
sometimes marital strife. There can be tragic cases of illness or accident in families, uh, very difficult things. So all of those things taken together uh, remind us that we need Jesus. This is not an extra thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're going to do this, we're going to launch our boat into an unknown future. That unknown is less daunting if we know that Jesus is who drives our boat, mm-hmm. that we're with the Lord, we're, we're committing ourselves to him so that he will be with us through all of it, then we'll be able to handle whatever comes. But without that, who knows? It's, it's mentioned in the vows, uh, from this day forward, for better or for worse. What? Wait. Who said there was a worse? Right. <laughs> you said on the day you got married that there could be a worse. Right. Ten years later, here we are. This is the worse. We said we were going to do this, mm-hmm. so we have to do it. Uh, for richer or for poorer... Now, for most couples, it's easy to imagine the poorer because they're living it at that moment. <laughs> uh, but yes, for rich or for poor, in sickness, mm-hmm. it could happen. Mm-hmm. And until death do us part, one day we may be that couple that's been married 75 years. Mm-hmm. And now they're 95 years old and they have to help each other get out of the chair, you know, right. that kind of a thing. Uh, we're in this for all of that. And so that's why it's so important to, to not just breeze through those vows one time at the wedding and not do anything more with them. Mm-hmm. Make those a part of the married spirituality, even after the, the wedding. Right. You know, it'd be a great thing to do on the anniversary, to repeat the vows. Uh, it's also why the church recommends that couples not write their own vows, mm-hmm. because would would you include those things? Right, yeah. You know? How convenient you left a part of that out. Yeah. Uh, to, to take you from my lawful wife, to have and to hold till as long as love lasts. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that example. It's really I've never actually seen it done or used, and who knows, maybe lasts. it was a Twitter lie or something, <laughs> or, or a marriage bot. I don't know what it was. But I've heard... Uh, uh, circumstances in which that kind of a vow was expressed, as long as love shall last. Now, maybe they meant love shall last forever, but it's a loophole. Yeah, there's a, yeah, look <laughs> at At any yeah. way, there's a, and before they even make the vows, they're asked, have you come here freely and without reservation to give yourselves to each other in marriage? It goes back to all that stuff from mm-hmm. the prenuptial questionnaire. You have to be free. And there can't be, you can't have your fingers crossed behind your back. There's no, yeah, no takes the backsies. Will you love and honor each other's man and wife for the rest of your lives? Mm-hmm. And then, will you accept children lovingly from God and bring them up according to the law of Christ and his church? I did a marriage once of a couple who were both in their 80s. They had both been married before, had both lost spouses, and now we're getting married to each other, and we didn't use that question. <laughs> we didn't use that, that particular question. But I've also done weddings with couples who had some kids, mm-hmm. but they were still young in childbearing years, 
and we're getting married to each other. And uh, I asked, will you accept other children lovingly from God? So the simple point is they're open to children, mm -hmm. which is a part of what's required for marriage. Right. Uh, and then, <laughs> then when the priest invites them to express their vows, he says, since it is your intention to enter into marriage... Join your right hands and declare your consent before God and His church. And then they express their vows. Mm -hmm. But I always was tempted to say, since it is your intention to enter into marriage, and we can't talk you out of it, <laughs> no one's been able to talk you out of it, join your right hands and declare your consent before God and His church. And so then they go through the vows. The vows can also be done by simple uh, a question. The priest ex ex uh, says the question, and they simply answer, I do. Uh, so, uh, you those know. are easier for those who get a little bit more emotional. Exactly, and the yeah. couple can choose to do that. Right. So, Joe, do you take Sally for your lawful wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, until death do you part? I do. Right. Of course, I do is famous, but uh, we have the option of simply expressing the vows. In in my experience, most couples chose that option to say the vows to each other. But they were very comfortable having the priest say it, and then I repeat it. Yeah, a phrase at a time because it can be you're nervous and you're afraid you're going to forget the the wording. Yeah, um, and so uh, the other uh, and the other uh, part of the ceremony that's so important is the nuptial blessing. Hmm. And again, it's a long and beautiful blessing, and. Uh, should become a part of the couple's prayer life because it's such a beautiful blessing. I'll give you one version of it. Okay. There are, I think, three versions that a couple can choose from. Um, so this one expresses it this way. Holy Father, you created mankind in your own image and made man and woman to be joined as husband and wife in union of body and heart and so fulfill their mission in this world. That's what they were created for. Father, to reveal the plan of your love, you made the union of husband and wife an image of the covenant between you and your people. In the fulfillment of this sacrament, the marriage of Christian man and woman is a sign of the marriage between Christ and the church. Father, stretch out your hand and bless Sally and Joe. Grant that as they begin to live this sacrament, they may share with each other the gifts of your love and become one in heart and mind as witnesses to your presence in their marriage. Help them to create a home together and give them children to be formed by the gospel and to have a place in your family. Give your blessing to Sally, your daughter, so that she may be a good wife and mother, caring for the home faithful in love for her husband, generous and kind, and give your blessings to Joe, your son, so that he may be a faithful husband and a good father. Father, grant that as they come together to your table on earth, so they may one day have the joy of sharing your feast in heaven. So there's a lot there, mm -hmm. and what is there will mean more and more as they go through life as they have more and more experiences of what it means to be married, what the better and the worse looks like, what the richer and the poorer and the sickness and the health looks like five years on, 10 years on, 20 years on, uh, that will mean different things to them as they read it. Different mm -hmm. things will stand out. Yeah. 
So yeah, so there's some unsystematic uh, reflections uh, in terms of the ceremony. And um, they're going to kiss the bride and off yeah. into the, the honeymoon and don't throw rice in front of the church, throw bird seed or whatever the church asks them to do. <laughs> well, very good. I think uh, we're going to, uh, upcoming episodes, we're going to invite a few maybe couples on to talk to them about, you know, how, how to live the domestic church now that you're married, like what to do. Yeah, uh, we, we didn't talk about number four here. We did one, two, and three. But the fourth one is precisely that. Uh, pastors of souls are obliged to help those in the married state by assistance furnished to those already married so that while faithfully maintaining and protecting the conjugal covenant, they may day by day come to lead holier and fuller lives in their families. So we thought that we'd get some married couples to come and talk about how do you support each other right. in this. Pastors of souls have an obligation to provide various kinds of programs, which we do, uh, there are different kinds of programs in parishes. The diocese has the holier, what's it called? Together in Holiness. Together in Holiness conference each year. But the richest place and the most uh, frequent place that this is going to happen is couples helping each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have Catholic Engaged Encounter as well that, that really help kind of model like different ages of, of marriage and what that looks like, different stages in life. Mm -hmm. and how to help support each other. But yeah, it'll be great to have uh, a couple other guests in here to talk about that. We'll have Audrey in uh, an upcoming episode talking about NFP and what yep. that looks like. Right. Um, yeah, it'll be, a, it'll be a lot of fun. Exactly. I look forward to it. All right. Well, thanks, Bishop. I appreciate it so much. Sure. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to Tulsa Time. Be sure to like and subscribe. Send us a review. Let, give us a comment. Let us know what you want to hear next. Uh, until next week, we'll see you then.